Section 2 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 8, Part 1, The Marquise de Brinvilliers by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 2 Saint-Croix thus wrote to Belle Guise, Dear friend, is it possible that you need any more talking to about the matter you know of, so important as it is, and may be able to give us peace and quiet for the rest of our days? I really think the devil must be in it, or else you simply will not be sensible. Do show your common sense, my good man, and look at it from all points of view. Uh, take it at its very worst, and you still ought to feel bound to serve me, seeing how I have made everything all right for you. All our interests are together in this matter. Do help me, I beg of you. You may feel sure I shall be deeply grateful and you will never before have acted so agreeably both for me and for yourself. You know quite enough about it, for I have not spoken so openly even to my own brother as I have to you. If you can come this afternoon, I shall be either at the house or quite near at hand. You know where I mean, or I will expect you tomorrow morning, or I will come and find you according to what you reply. Always yours with all my heart." The house meant by Saint-Croix was in the Rue de Bernardins, and the place near at hand where he was to wait for Belleguise was the room he leased from the widow Brunet, in the blind alley out of the place Maubert. It was in this room, and at the apothecary Glazer's, that Saint-Croix made his experiments. But in accordance with poetical justice, the manipulation of the poisons proved fatal to the workers themselves. The apothecary fell ill and died. Martin was attacked by fearful sickness, which brought him to death's door. Saint-Croix was unwell and could not even go out, though he did not know what was the matter. He had a furnace brought round to his house from Glazer's, and ill as he was, went on with his experiments. Saint-Croix was then seeking to make a poison so subtle that the very effluvia might be fatal. He had heard of the poisoned napkin given to the young Dauphin, elder brother of Charles VII, to wipe his hands on during a game of tennis, and knew that the contact had caused his death, and the still-discussed tradition had informed him of the gloves of Jean d'Albray. The secret was lost, but Saint-Croix hoped to recover it. And then there happened one of those strange accidents which seemed to be not the hand of chance, but a punishment from heaven. At the very moment when Saint-Croix was bending over his furnace, watching the fatal preparation as it became hotter and hotter, the glass mask which he wore over his face as a protection from any poisonous exhalations that might rise up from the mixture suddenly dropped off, and Saint-Croix dropped to the ground as though felled by a lightning stroke. At supper-time his wife, finding that he did not come out from his closet where he was shut in, knocked at the door and received no answer. Knowing that her husband was wont to busy himself with dark and mysterious matters, she feared some disaster had occurred. She called her servants, who broke in the door. Then she found Saint-Croix stretched out beside the furnace, the broken glass lying by his side. It was impossible to deceive the public as to the circumstances of this strange and sudden death. The servants had seen the corpse, and they talked. The commissary Picard was ordered to affix the seals, and all the widow could do was to remove the furnace and the fragments of the glass mask. The noise of the event soon spread all over Paris. Saint-Croix was extremely well known, and the news that he was about to purchase a post in the court had made him known even more widely. Lachaussee was one of the first to learn of his master's death, 
and hearing that a seal had been set upon his room, he hastened to put in an objection in these terms. Objection of La Chaussée, who asserts that for seven years he was in the service of the deceased, that he had given into his charge two years earlier one hundred pistoles and two hundred white crowns, which should be found in a cloth bag under the closet window, and in the same a paper stating that the said sum belonged to him, together with the transfer of three hundred livres owed to him by the late Monsieur d'Aubray, councillor. The said transfer made by him at La Serre, together with three receipts from his master of apprenticeship, one hundred livres each, these monies and papers he claims. To La Chaussée, the reply was given that he must wait till the day when the seals were broken, and that if all was as he said, his property would be returned. But La Chaussée was not the only person who was agitated about the death of Saint-Croix. The Marquise, who was familiar with all the secrets of this fatal closet, had hurried to the commissary as soon as she heard of the event, and although it was ten o'clock at night, had demanded to speak with him. But he had replied by his head clerk, Pierre Frate, that he was in bed. The Marquise insisted, begging them to rouse him up, for she wanted a box that she could not allow to have opened. The clerk then went up to the Sieur Picard's room, but came back saying that what the Marquise demanded was, for the time being, an impossibility, for the commissary was asleep. She saw that it was idle to insist, and went away, saying that she would send a man in the next morning to fetch the box. In the morning the man came, offering fifty louis to the commissary on behalf of the Marquise, if he would give her the box but he replied that the box was in the sealed room, that it would have to be opened, and that if the objects claimed by the Marquise were really hers, they would be safely handed over to her. This reply struck the Marquise like a thunderbolt. There was no time to be lost. Hastily she removed from the Rue Neuve saint paul where her townhouse was, to Picpus, her country place. Thence she posted the same evening to Liege, arriving the next morning and retiring to a convent. The seals had been set on the 31st of July, 1672, and they were taken off on the 8th of August following. Just as they set to work, a lawyer charged with full powers of acting for the Marquise appeared and put in the following statement. Alexandre Delamar, lawyer acting for the Marquise de Brambilliers, has come forward and declares that if, in the box claimed by his client, there is found a promise signed by her for the sum of 30,000 livres, it is a paper taken from her by fraud, against which, in case of her signature being verified, she intends to lodge an appeal for nullification. This formality over, they proceeded to open St. Croix's closet. The key was handed to the commissary Picard by a Carmelite called Friar Victorin. The commissary opened the door and entered with the parties interested, the officers and the widow and they began by setting aside the loose papers with a view to taking them in order one at a time. While they were thus busy, a small roll fell down on which these two words were written, My Confession. All present, having no reason to suppose St. Croix a bad man, decided that this paper ought not to be read. The deputy for the Attorney General on being consulted was of this opinion, and the confession of St. Croix was burnt. This act of conscience performed, they proceeded to make an inventory. One of the first objects that attracted the attention of the officers was the box claimed by Madame de Brinvilliers. Her insistence had provoked curiosity, so they began with it. 
Everybody went near to see what was in it, and it was opened. We shall let the report speak. In such cases, nothing is so effective or so terrible as the official statement. In the closet of St. Croix was found a small box, one foot square, on the top of which lay a half-sheet of paper entitled, My Will, written on one side and containing these words, I humbly entreat any into whose hands this chest may fall to do me the kindness of putting it into the hands of Madame the Marquise de Bronvilliers, resident in the Rue Neuve St. Paul, seeing that all the contents concern and belong to her alone, and are of no use to any person in the world apart from herself. In case of her being already dead before me, the box and all its contents should be burnt without opening or disturbing anything, and lest anyone should plead ignorance of the contents, I swear by the God I worship and by all that is most sacred that no untruth is here asserted. If anyone should contravene my wishes that are just and reasonable in this matter, I charge their conscience therewith in discharging my own in this world and the next, protesting that such is my last wish. Given at Paris, the 25th of May afternoon, 1672, signed by St. Croix and below these written words were, There is one packet only addressed to Monsieur Penautier, which should be delivered. It may be easily understood that a disclosure of this kind only increased the interest of the scene. There was a murmur of curiosity, and when silence again reigned, the official continued in these words. A packet has been found sealed in eight different places with eight different seals. On this is written, Papers to be burnt in case of my death, of no consequence to anyone. I humbly beg those into whose hands they may fall to burn them. I give this as a charge upon their conscience, all without opening the packet. In this packet we find two parcels of sublimate. Item, another packet sealed with six different seals, on which is a similar inscription, in which is found more sublimate, half a pound in weight. Item, another packet sealed with six different seals, on which is a similar inscription, in which are found three parcels, one containing half an ounce of sublimate, the second two and one quarter ounces of Roman vitriol, and the third some calcined bared vitriol. In the box was found a large square file, one pint in capacity, full of a clear liquid which was looked at by Monsieur Moreau, the doctor. He, however, could not tell its nature until it was tested. Item, another vial, with half a pint of clear liquid with a white sediment, about which Moreau said the same thing as before. Item, a small earthenware pot containing two or three lumps of prepared opium. Item, a folded paper containing two drachms of corrosive sublimate powdered. Next, a little box containing a sort of stone known as infernal stone. Next, a paper containing one ounce of opium. Next, a piece of pure antimony weighing three ounces. Next, a packet of powder on which was written, To check the flow of blood. Miro said that it was quince flour and quince buds dried. Item, a pack sealed with six seals on which was written, Papers to be burnt in case of death. In this, twenty-four letters were found, said to have been written by the Marquise de Bronvilliers. Item, Another packet sealed with six seals, on which a similar inscription was written. In this there were twenty-seven pieces of paper, on each of which was written, Sundry Curious Secrets. Item, another packet with six more seals, on which a similar inscription was written. In this were found seventy-five livres addressed to different persons, 
Besides all these in the box, there were two bonds, one from the Marquise for 30,000, and one from Penautier for 10,000 francs, their dates corresponding to the time of the deaths of Monsieur d'Aubray and the Sieur de Saint-Laurent. The difference in the amount shows that Saint-Croix had a tariff, and that parricide was more expensive than simple assassination. Thus in his death did Saint-Croix bequeath the poisons to his mistress and his friend, not content with his own crimes in the past he wished to be their accomplice in the future the first business of the officials was to submit the different substances to analysis and to experiment with them on animals the report follows of guy simon an apothecary who was charged to undertake the analysis and the experiments this artificial poison reveals its nature on examination it is so disguised that one fails to recognize it so subtle that it deceives the scientific, so elusive that it escapes the doctor's eye. Experiments seem to be at fault with this poison, rules useless, aphorisms ridiculous. The surest experiments are made by the use of the elements or upon animals. In water, ordinary poison falls by its own weight. The water is superior, the poison obeys, falls downwards, and takes the lower place. The trial by fire is no less certain, the fire evaporates and disperses all that is innocent and pure, leaving only acrid and sour matter which resists its influence. The effect produced by poisons on animals is still more plain to see. Its malignity extends to every part that it reaches, and all that it touches is vitiated. It burns and scorches all the inner parts with a strange, irresistible fire. The poison employed by Saint-Croix has been tried in all the ways and can defy every experiment. This poison floats in water. It is the superior, and the water obeys it. It escapes in the trial by fire, leaving behind only innocent deposits. In animals, it is so skillfully concealed that no one could detect it. All parts of the animal remain healthy and active, even while it is spreading the cause of death. This artificial poison leaves behind the marks and appearance of life. Every sort of experiment has been tried. The first was to pour out several drops of the liquid found into oil of tartar and seawater, and nothing was precipitated into the vessels used. The second was to pour the same liquid into a sanded vessel, and at the bottom there was found nothing acrid or acid to the tongue, scarcely any stains. The third experiment was tried upon an Indian fowl, a pigeon, a dog, and some other animals, which died soon after. When they were opened, however, nothing was found but a little coagulated blood in the ventricle of the heart. Another experiment was giving a white powder to a cat in a morsel of mutton. The cat vomited for half an hour and was found dead the next day, but when opened no part of it was found to be affected by the poison. A second trial of the same poison was made upon a pigeon which soon died. When opened, nothing peculiar was found except a little reddish water in the stomach. These experiments proved that Saint-Croix was a learned chemist, and suggested the idea that he did not employ his art for nothing. Everybody recalled the sudden, unexpected deaths that had occurred, and the bonds from the Marquise and from Penautier looked like blood money. As one of these two was absent and the other so powerful and rich that they dared not arrest him without proofs, attention was now paid to the objection put in by La Chaussée. It was said in the objection that La Chaussée had spent seven years in the service of Saint-Croix, so he could not have considered the time he had passed with the Daubrays as an interruption to his service. 
the bag containing the thousand pistoles and the three bonds for a hundred livres had been found in the place indicated thus la chaussee had a thorough knowledge of this closet if he knew the closet he would know about the box if he knew about the box he could not be an innocent man this was enough to induce madame mangot de villacru the lieutenant's widow to lodge an accusation against him and in consequence a writ was issued against la chaussee and he was arrested when this happened poison was found upon him the trial came on before the chatelet la chaussee denied his guilt obstinately the judges thinking they had no sufficient proof ordered the preparatory questions to be applied mademoiselle mangot appealed from a judgment which would probably save the culprit if he had the strength to resist the torture and own to nothing note there were two kinds of question one before and one after the sentence was passed in the first an accused person would endure frightful torture in the hope of saving his life and so would often confess nothing in the second there was no hope and therefore it was not worth while to suffer additional pains so in virtue of this appeal a judgment on march fourth sixteen seventy three declared that jean amelin lachaussee was convicted of having poisoned the lieutenant and the counsellor for which he was to be broken alive on the wheel having been first subjected to the question both ordinary and extraordinary with a view to the discovery of his accomplices at the same time madame de brinvilliers was condemned in default of appearance to have her head cut off la chaussee suffered the torture of the boot this was having each leg fastened between two planks and drawn together in an iron ring after which wedges were driven in between the middle planks the ordinary question was with four wedges the extraordinary with eight at the third wedge la chaussee said he was ready to speak so the question was stopped and he was carried into the choir of the chapel stretched on a mattress where in a weak voice for he could hardly speak he begged for half an hour to recover himself we give a verbatim extract from the report of the question and the execution of the death sentence la chaussee released from the question had laid on the mattress the official reporter retired half an hour later la chaussee begged that he might return and said that he was guilty that st croix told him that madame de brinvilliers had given him the poison to administer to her brothers that he had done it in water and soup had put the reddish water in the lieutenant's glass in paris and the clear water in the pie at villacroix that st croix had promised to keep him always and to make him a gift of one hundred pistoles that he gave him an account of the effect of the poisons and that st croix had given him some of the waters several times st croix told him that the marquise knew nothing of his other poisonings but la chaussee thought she did know because she had often spoken to him about his poisons that she wanted to compel him to go away offering him money if he would go that she had asked him for the box and its contents that if st croix had been able to put any one into the service of madame d'aubray the lieutenant's widow he would possibly have had her poisoned also for he had a fancy for her daughter this declaration which left no room for doubt led to the judgment that came next thus described in the parliamentary register report of the question and execution on the twenty fourth of march sixteen seventy three containing the declarations and confessions of jean amelin lachaussee the court has ordered that the persons mentioned belleguise martin poitevin olivier ferron pere and wife of queston the wig-maker be summoned to appear before the court to be interrogated 
and heard concerning matters arising from the present inquiry and orders that the decree of arrest against Lapierre and summons against Penautier decreed by the criminal lieutenant shall be carried out. In Parliament, 27th March, 1673. In virtue of this judgment, Penautier, Martin, and Belleguise were interrogated on the 21st, 22nd, and 24th of April. On the 26th of July, Penautier was discharged. Fuller information was desired concerning Belleguise, and the arrest of Martin was ordered. On the 24th of March, La Chaussée had been broken on the wheel. As to Exili, the beginner of it all, he had disappeared like Mephistopheles after Faust's end, and nothing was heard of him. Towards the end of the year, Martin was released for want of sufficient evidence, but the Marquise de Brenvilliers remained at Liege, and, although she was shut up in a convent, she had by no means abandoned one, at any rate, of the most worldly pleasures. She had soon found consolation for the death of St. Croix, whom, all the same, she had loved so much as to be willing to kill herself for his sake. But she had adopted a new lover, Teria by name. About this man it has been impossible to get any information, except that his name was several times mentioned during the trial. Thus, all the accusation had one by one fallen upon her, and it was resolved to seek her out in the retreat where she was supposed to be safe. The mission was difficult and very delicate. Desgray, one of the cleverest of the officials, offered to undertake it. He was a handsome man, thirty-six years old or thereabouts. Nothing in his looks betrayed his connection with the police. He wore any kind of dress with equal ease and grace, and was familiar with every grade in the social scale, disguising himself as a wretched tramp or a noble lord. He was just the right man, so his offer was accepted. He started accordingly for Liege, escorted by several archers and fortified by a letter from the king, addressed to the sixty of that town, wherein Louis the Fourteenth demanded the guilty woman be given up for punishment. After examining the letter which Desgray had taken pains to procure, the council authorized the extradition of the Marquise. This was much, but it was not all. The Marquise, as we know, had taken refuge in a convent, where Desgray dared not arrest her by force for two reasons. First, because she might get information beforehand and hide herself in one of the cloister retreats whose secret is known only to the superior. Secondly, because Liege was so religious a town that the event would produce a great sensation. The act might be looked upon as a sacrilege and might bring about a popular rising, during which the Marquise might possibly contrive to escape. So, Desgray paid a visit to his wardrobe, and feeling that an abbey's dress would be best free him from suspicion, he appeared at the doors of the convent in the guise of a fellow countryman just returned from Rome, unwilling to pass through Liege without presenting his compliments to the lovely and unfortunate Marquise. Desgray had just the manner of the younger son of a great house. He was as flattering as a courtier, as enterprising as a musketeer. In this first visit, he made himself attractive by his wit and his audacity, so much so that more easily than he had dared to hope, he got leave to pay a second call. The second visit was not long delayed. Desgray presented himself the very next day. Such eagerness was flattering to the Marquise. So Desgray was received even better than the night before. She, a woman of rank and fashion, for more than a year had been robbed of all intercourse with people of a certain set. 
So, with Desgray, the Marquise resumed her Parisian manner. Unhappily, the charming abbe was to leave Liege in a few days, and on that account he became all the more pressing, and a third visit to take place next day was formally arranged. Desgray was punctual. The Marquise was impatiently waiting him, but by a conjunction of circumstances that Desgray had no doubt arranged beforehand, the amorous meeting was disturbed two or three times just as they were getting more intimate and least wanting to be observed. Desgray complained of these tiresome checks. Besides, the Marquise and he too would be compromised. He owed concealment to his cloth. He begged her to grant him a rendezvous outside the town, in some deserted walk where there would be no fear of their being recognized or followed. The Marquise hesitated no longer than would serve to put a price on the favor she was granting, and the rendezvous was fixed for the same evening. The evening came. Both waited with the same impatience, but with very different hopes. The Marquise found Desgray at the appointed spot. He gave her his arm, then holding her hand in his own, he gave a sign. The archers appeared. The lover threw off the mask. Desgray's was confessed, and the Marquise was his prisoner. Desgray left her in the hands of his men, and hastily made his way to the convent. Then, and not before, he produced his order from the sixty, by means of which he opened the Marquise's room. Under her bed he found a box, which he seized and sealed. Then he went back to her and gave the order to start. When the Marquise saw the box in the hands of Desgray, she at first appeared stunned. Quickly recovering, she claimed a paper inside it which contained her confession. Desgray refused, and as he turned round for the carriage to come forward, she tried to choke herself by swallowing a pin. One of the archers, called Claude, Rolla, perceiving her intention, contrived to get the pin out of her mouth. After this, Desgray commanded that she should be doubly watched. They stopped for supper. An archer called Antoine Barbier was present at the meal, and watched so that no knife or fork should be put on the table, or any instrument which, with, she could wound or kill herself. The Marquise, as she put her glass to her mouth as though to drink, broke a little bit off with her teeth, but the archer saw it in time and forced her to put it out on her plate. Then she promised him, if he would save her, that she would make his fortune. He asked what he would have to do for that. She proposed that he should cut Desgray's throat, but he refused, saying that he was at her service in any other way. So she asked him for pen and paper, and wrote this letter. Dear Thierry, I am in the hands of Desgray, who is taking me by road from Liege to Paris. Come quickly and save me. Antoine Barbier took the letter, promising to deliver it at the right address, but he gave it to Desgray instead. The next day, finding that this letter had not been pressing enough, she wrote him another, saying that the escort was only eight men, who could be easily overcome by four or five determined assailants, and she counted on him to strike this bald stroke. But, uneasy when she got no answer and no result from her letters, she dispatched a third missive to Teria. In this, she implored him by his own salvation, if he were not strong enough to attack her escort and save her, at least to kill two of the four horses by which she was conveyed, and to profit by the moment of confusion to seize the chest and throw it into the fire. Otherwise, she declared, she was lost. Though Teria received none of these letters, which were one by one handed over by Barbier to Desgray, he all the same did go to Maestricht, 
where the marquise was to pass of his own accord there he tried to bribe the archers offering as much as ten thousand livres but they were incorruptible at rocroy the cortege met monsieur palouau the counsellor whom the parliament had sent after the prisoner that he might put questions to her at a time when she least expected them and so would not have prepared her answers desgray told him all that had passed and specially called his attention to the famous box the object of so much anxiety and so many eager instructions Monsieur de Palois opened it, and found among other things a paper headed, My Confession. This confession was proof that the guilty felt great need of discovering their crimes either to mankind or to a merciful God. St. Croix, we know, had made a confession that was burnt, and here was the Marquise equally imprudent. The confession contained seven articles, and began thus. I confess to God, and to you, my father and was a complete avowal of all the crimes she had committed. In the first article she accused herself of incendiarism, in the second of having ceased to be a virgin at seven years of age, in the third of having poisoned her father, in the fourth of having poisoned her two brothers, in the fifth that she had tried to poison her sister, a Carmelite nun. The two other articles were concerned with the description of strange and unnatural sins. In this woman there was something of Locusta and something of Messalina as well. Antiquity could go no further. Monsieur de Palois, fortified by his knowledge of this important document, began his examination forthwith. We give it verbatim, rejoicing that we may substitute an official report for our own narrative. Asked why she fled to Liege, she replied that she left France on account of some business with her sister-in-law asked if she had any knowledge of the papers found in the box she replied that in the box there were several family papers and among them a general confession which she desired to make when she wrote it however her mind was disordered she knew not what she had said or done being distraught at the time in a foreign country deserted by her relatives forced to borrow every penny asked as to the first article what house it was she had burnt she replied that she had not burnt anything but when she wrote that she was out of her senses asked about the six other articles she replied that she had no recollection of them asked if she had not poisoned her father and brothers she replied that she knew nothing at all about it asked if it were not la chaussee who poisoned her brothers she replied that she knew nothing about it asked if she did not know that her sister could not live long having been poisoned she said that she expected her sister to die because she suffered in the same way as her brothers, that she had lost all memory of the time when she wrote this confession, admitted that she left France by the advice of her relations. Asked why her relations had advised her thus, she replied that it was in connection with her brother's affairs, admitted seeing St. Croix since his release from the Bastille, asked if St. Croix had not persuaded her to get rid of her father, she replied that she could not remember, neither did she remember if st croix had given her powders or other drugs nor if st croix had told her he knew how to make her rich eight letters having been produced asked to whom she had written them she replied that she did not remember asked why she had promised to pay thirty thousand livres to st croix she replied that she intended to entrust this sum to his care so that she might make use of it when she wanted it believing him to be her friend she had not wished this to be known by reason of her creditors that she had an acknowledgment from st croix but had lost it in her travels that her husband knew nothing about it 
Asked if the promise was made before or after the death of her brothers, she replied that she could not remember, and it made no difference. Asked if she knew an apothecary named Glazer, she replied that she had consulted him three times about inflammation. Asked why she wrote to Teria to get hold of the box, she replied that she did not understand. Asked why, in writing to Teria, she had said she was lost unless he got hold of the box, she replied that she could not remember. Asked if she had seen during the journey with her father the first symptoms of his malady, she replied that she had not noticed that her father was ill on the journey, either going or coming back in 1666. Asked if she had not done business with Penautier, she replied that Penautier owed her 30,000 livres. Asked how this was, she replied that she and her husband had lent Penautier 10,000 crowns, that he had paid it back, and since then they had had no dealings with him. The Marquise took refuge, we see, in a complete system of denial. Arrived at Paris and confined in the conciergerie, she did the same. But soon other terrible charges were added, which still further overwhelmed her. End of section two. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.